in the mountain and at the seashore. I have abandoned myself. Welcome to the Poetry Magazine podcast. I'm Lindsay Garbett. When we asked Kathy Park Hong who she wanted to speak with on the podcast, she said her friend, poet and translator Lin Xu. In this week's episode, Hong and Xu talk about the startling directness of Korean poet Che Soon Ja and the humbling experience of translation. The conversation ranges from Nietzsche to South Korea in the 1980s and from Paul Salon to capitalism. As Xu says, Choi's poems contemplate living with death as one's companion, but instead of indulging in nihilism, her poems are often surprisingly hopeful. Che Soon Ja is one of the most influential feminist poets in South Korea. Kathy Park Hong has never been able to actually talk to Che directly, as mental illness has led Che to move in and out of hospitals for much of the past two decades. A community of poets, including Kim Hai-soon, banded together to support Che financially and help her continue to write. Hong and her co-translator, Wong Chung Kim, worked through the intermediaries of Che's Korean publisher and occasionally Che's uncle to bring her book, Phone Bells Keep Ringing for Me, into English. I'm grateful to Che Soon Ja for the work and to Hong and Xu for this intimate, enthusiastic conversation about Che's poems. To start us off, here's Kathy Park Hong reading Already I by Che Soon Ja. Already I was nothing, mold formed on stale bread, trail of piss stains on the wall, a maggot-covered corpse a thousand years old. Nobody raised me. I was nothing from the beginning, sleeping in a rat's hole, nibbling on the flea's liver, dying absentmindedly in any old place. So don't say you know me when we cross paths like falling stars. I don't know you, I don't know you, you, thou, there, happiness, you, thou, there, love. That I am alive is no more than an endless rumor. It's so beautiful. Yeah. Her her poems, like, you know, they're both so dark and abject, but there's also something so defiant and transcendent in the way she's so direct, you know. It's a huge surprise to read her work. Uh, why? Why do you find it to be? Well, no, it, it's a delightful surprise. I mean, when you discover a poet and it discover a kindred voice. I mean, mm-hmm. she she translates from the German into Korean and she translates Nietzsche among a variety of other thinkers. Mm-hmm. I felt that connection. I felt that through line mm-hmm. as well. And thinking about a dialogue with the German tradition and a very philosophical poet, mm-hmm. I thought. Yeah, she was a German literature scholar and she did do a lot of translation work. And there is, now that you mention it, a lot of similarities between her and definitely Nietzsche, you know? Yeah, and I hear a lot of Bachmann in there, the Ingeborg Bach, sort of how simple her language yeah. is. But I was going to say the arc that you guys created in the book of um, the emergency of kind of bodily integrity in the beginning and the earlier poems, and then seeing Uh that the body open onto a sort of other kind of horizon later on, a more spiritual horizon, Mm -hmm. philosophical horizon. I mean, it's all there, but but there is that movement 
into a larger space later. And I found that to be so interesting. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I think her poetry became much more metaphysical, uh, mystical later on, whereas her poems earlier on is much more embodied to the point where where you could describe her poetry as abject. Yes. Uh, I mean, also her poetry uh, shares a lot of similarities with her kind of contemporaries, like the poets who came of age, you know, during the 80s. That was a time in South Korea when there were nationwide democracy movements and there were like a string of dictators who were ruling South Korea, like Park Jung-hee and Jeon Doo-won. So there were mass demonstrations to kind of try to overthrow these presidents, these leaders, and there was a real kind of political ferment in the literary community. And at first, the, the poets, the most renowned poets, were predominantly male, but then there emerged this really kind of amazing uh, group of feminist poets like Kim Hae-soon and Kim Jung-hee and Che Sung-ja was part of that. And if you read their poems together, there's definitely that same startling directness in all of their poetry. And it was a real kind of reaction against this expectation of what Korean women poets were supposed to write like, right? Like they were supposed to write quiet poems, domestic poems, or maybe nature poems. And it was really kind of almost a direct assault against that by writing so brutally and insistently about the body Mm -hmm. and what happens to the female body in this very kind of claustrophobic, patriarchal, Confucian, capitalist country. So there's Mm -hmm. there's a deep, deep connection, I think, among her contemporaries as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and here in this one in particular, because of the collapse, the I don't know you that sort of is run together, reminds me a lot of Ceylon as well. And the nobody and the, uh, you know, the sort of emptiness of the person, the uh, the abyssal reality um, Mm -hmm. of being, but and, and also just always living with death as as one's companion, right? It's always the grave is always swinging open underneath her being. Yeah. That creates an incredible kinship for me. I feel really close to that poetics. Yeah, no, I mean, I wonder if she actually read any of Ceylon's poetry. I mean, she probably did if she was a German scholar, but I think there is definitely like that kind of poetics of negation of like, you know, calling out and nobody answering. And that extreme, extreme solitude is definitely like uh, yeah. reminiscent of Paul Ceylon. And you you shall see, you should see, and I could, you know, read another poem. Maybe I could read another poem called 30 Years Old. Oh, I like that poem too. Yeah. But, yeah. Very. It's interesting. It's like she has these poems where she's like, where there are these milestones where she'll write a poem about each age, like 30 years old and 40 years old. And so it's, well, let me just read it and then I could talk about it a little bit. It's called 30 Years Old. When you can't live like this or die like this, the age of 30 comes. You wave a white handkerchief, painful as a toothache, and beg with the wide open whites of your eyes. My dreams are a cancer cell sprouts in my stomach, 
getting married, a poison wide awake in my liver and intestines. Death's traffic light blinks red in my two eye sockets. My blood is jelly, my fingernails sawdust, and my hair wire. A disembodied shade goes forth through the endless mineral fog, while birds with no new dreams dream of flying to memories Golgotha to bury their bones. A white handkerchief drops and the eyes shudder up their white glare. Oh, happy, happy surrender. Shamefaced, we are happy. It's interesting. So she has like these poems, like 30 years old, 40 years old, where these are kind of milestone ages. And, it, you know, when I was 30 years old, I was still like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Who knows? Uh, like just still a teenager. I don't know. I, was I, just, I, I didn't still know I was feel doing. like a teenager. I mean, maybe like even less, but. <laughs> yeah. But I, I was kind of flailing, you know, but like the expectation of a 30-year-old in Seoul is marriage, right? And kids and, you know, there are these more these kind of traditional conventional milestones that you are supposed to reach at at these certain ages, at uh, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, so on, especially if you're a woman. But with like Che Sung-ja, she is, you know, it's death. It's death that's constantly following her, that's yeah. constantly shadowing her. And it's really quite you know, visceral, how it follows her, you know, with the wide open whites of your eyes and, and so forth. But um, this, you know, goes back to your previous question is this kind of this poetry of negation and the extreme loneliness in her poems. Absolutely. Maybe it's a good book to read during the pandemic. I don't know. But it's like there's so I just felt I, I think there are very few poets who can really who really gets at the relentless solitude that just won't it just it's never relieved you know and it's so it's so painfully felt in all of her and all of her poems yeah I found I actually found so because you know I love Nietzsche a lot and so sort of having that connection was like a spark for me and I I don't have the Zarathustra here with me which is what she translated mm-hmm. but I have a copy of the gay science and there I'm going to read one of the aphorisms because I feel like the poem also you read in particular but the whole collection feels very close to this one little or medium aphorism it's called the thought of death <laughs> which is quite appropriate appropriate yeah uh It gives me a melancholy happiness to live in the midst of this jumble of lanes, needs, and voices. How much enjoyment, impatience, desire, how much thirsty life and drunkenness of life comes to light every moment of the day. And yet things will soon be so silent for all these noisy, living, life-thirsty ones. How even now everyone's shadow stands behind him as his dark fellow traveler, It's always like the last moment before the departure of an emigrant ship. People have no more to say to each other than ever. The hour is late. The ocean and its desolate silence await impatiently behind all the noise so covetous, so certain of its prey. And everyone, everyone takes the past to be little or nothing, while the near future is everything, hence this haste, this clamor, this out-shouting and out-hustling, 
one another. Everyone wants to be the first in this future, and yet death and deathly silence are the only things certain and common to all in this future. How strange that this soul certainty and commonality barely makes an impression on people, and that they are farthest removed from feeling like a brotherhood of death. It makes me happy to see that people do not all want to think the thought of death. I would very much like to do something that would make the thought of life even a hundred times more worth being thought to them. I just feel like that sort of ending on that happiness, that we are happy, that this sort of strange, defiant Mm -hmm. negation of death, but by itself an affirmation of the moment of living, you know? And I think that's why it doesn't feel, and Nietzsche too is Mm -hmm. not necessarily, I mean, I don't read him as a nihilist. I don't think of her nihilism as as a sort of um, an empty in nothingness, but it's populated by sort of these moments of defiance, which I feel Mm -hmm. like it's a poem in there, which is like the poem is shouting, right? It's like, my poems are small, they're brief, but they're this sort of shout. Yeah. And the fact that she wants to break open that silence is, I think, a joyful one, you know, one of, in defiance of itself. It's very inspiring. Yeah. There's so much desire, Mm -hmm. I think, in her poems, too. You know, there's so, uh, there's a kind of beseeching quality in her poem, in in her voice that, you know, that is, I think, antithetical to someone who's, a nihilist, you know, but it, it was definitely, um, it was a challenge. I mean, this is something I would love to talk to you about too, because the book was a challenge to translate. You know, I think I didn't have a lot of confidence at first in myself as a translator because Wanchung, you know, he's a native Korean speaker, you know, so he would do sort of I don't know what the kind of the mechanical or the literal, you know, those are all probably inaccurate terms by now, a translation. And I was the one who kind of finessed it into idioms and uh, that made more sense to the English language and also to also made it more musical. Right. And my Korean has has gotten very rusty, you know, so there was a sense of tentativeness, you know, where even though I felt very close to I just felt there was also this kind of great chasm of not knowing, you know, like that I was translating her from, mm-hmm. you know, overseas, you know, in New York, that I couldn't even talk to her or be in contact with her. And that, like, you know, there was also this huge gap of how my Korean has eroded over time. So there was also this anxiety on my part translating Chae Sung Ja. And, he, and it was, I was grateful for Wan Chung to kind of be there for the accuracy of the language. But I still, you know, wonder if I really captured her soul, captured her voice, you know. And I was curious about what you thought, because you are, I think you're like multilingual, right? You speak. I mean, I can read other languages. I mm-hmm. mean, because I, you know, for school, I had, that was a part of what I had to do. Mm-hmm. But I also feel, I mean, I, I don't know. I think that the voice, com- you, you absolutely, there is something that you've translated. You've translated a, a movement of the spirit. And I don't know whether or not it's hers. It feels like it's hers. But I don't really know if it matters, mm-hmm. right? Because it's in that kind of 
it's a, in a space of conversation that mm -hmm. the translation comes to us. I know you say it's really hard, mm -hmm. but it feels really simple when I read it because the language that you've given us is so um, immediate. And I was really interested also, and this goes back to my interest in Nietzsche as well, and her translation of Nietzsche, but the way that her, the way that her symbolic language works and what the symbolic kind of uh, gesture is in, in these works. And I wonder if you could read the poem for why. Sure, I can do that. For why, you have abandoned me, saying it's time to break up. You have abandoned me. In the mountain and at the seashore, I have abandoned myself. When I splayed myself on the table and spread my legs, I saw the sky through the concrete roof and the air filling up the lungs of flying birds. Before I could count to five, I could no longer see the roof, the sky, and the birds. While dying, I saw my baby and me floating endlessly down the city ditch, down the city ditch and into the womb of bygone days. Since then, when I lie down in this world as in a grave and long for the sky, my baby flies by, trailing fins that look like a tadpole's tail. You bastard, I'll kill you by any means. I'll give birth to you inside me again. When my baby, blown by a strong wind, plunges into the ground, it lives warm in my grave for a few months and then departs for the cold sky sea again, trailing fins that look like a tadpole's tail. Oh, son of a bitch, I'll never forget you. I love that ending. <laughs> I love it. Um, first, I, I feel like what I wanted to talk about was in stanza three when you say, or when she says, before I could count to five, I could no longer see the roof, the sky, and the birds. While dying, I saw my baby and me floating endlessly down the city ditch, down the city ditch, and into the womb. And at that point, all of the things I, I'm holding accountable for their material realities until the last line of that stanza where the womb becomes the bygone day's womb of. This is the first of, right? I mean, in the stanza where it turns into a figure, where the womb turns into a figure mm. rather than itself. And I love that she's able to hold the symbol and its material reality next to each other. That's just, I think that's really magical. When I lie down in this world as in a grave and long for the sky, my baby flies by trailing fins that look like a tadpole's tail. And then also what I found to be really beautiful is the setup in the beginning. And this you talk about before about kind of the erotic quality, this sort of movement of desire in her poems. Because mm -hmm. the you, you have abandoned me. It, it fe feels like a romantic relationship in the beginning, right? The, the you feels like a romantic partner. But then in the first stanza, I abandoned myself. Then it, there's the baby. They're nested together, right? And I love that, mm -hmm. that sort of collapse of a kind of promiscuity of desire. I don't think I've ever read a poem where the romantic other is converted 
so quickly into a child figure. I mean, where the two are collapsed in this in this, in this way. Yeah, I, I, I know. know. I mean, I you know what what is so pervasive in all of Che's poetry is is a direct address. Uh, you know, the second person, the you, and the you, the direct address to the you is often uh, accusatory. And the speaker always speaks from a place of abandonment. And a lot of times Mm -hmm. the you is a lover who has left or the lover who can never be reached or a lover who never, Mm -hmm. you know, calls her, (laughs) which I think Uh a a lot of people... I want to talk about the phone call. Yeah, but I want to talk about the phone too um, at some point. Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, I mean, there are definitely some prevalent metaphors or metonyms or, or they're actual as well is... You know, the womb is also a huge metaphor. And it's it is really strange in this book, in this poem for why, why who could be the lover, that you know, the why is both a loved one, but also the baby, you know, and it's like this could be the person's baby, it's a baby's, it's a person's spawn who then becomes the you, but then she loses the baby as well. And Another aspect that I want to talk about this poem is that there's like with Joyelle McSweeney, she's the publisher of Action Books. She wrote an essay called The Necro Pastoral. And, you know, and there's a lot of the body, you know, the speaker is often both the hollowed body, the body without womb, the body that is wombless. And in her poetry, when the womb is barren or empty, there is no sense of selfhood mm-hmm. in her poetry because, and here I have. I have to think, and maybe I'm not, I hope I'm not imposing too much of a feminist reading on it, is because there's such, you know, this kind of codification of, or this kind of identity, female identity, so tied to fertility and children in South Korea. But then there's also the the speaker who's kind of disincarnate, who's a spirit, who's always floating or flying, or, you know, she's always speaking post-life, you know, post-mortem, and the baby becomes that as well. And I just think it's also quite kind of startling, too, where she goes from the direct, you have abandoned me, and then we turn to, when I've splayed myself on the table and spread my legs, we get to Mm, this sort of mm -hmm. gynecological scene there, like, you know, where some, where the baby is being maybe aborted or I don't know, or there's a miscarriage that has happened and and so forth. So failures of childbirth, the failures of bearing a child of an empty womb, I think is about her status as a woman, but also I think so much of it is also the way she sees the country mm-hmm. as well in this kind of a late capitalist society. You know, there's so much also, if we're talking about metaphors, there's also so much garbage, you know, mm-hmm. and detritus. And debris piss, and right? piss. Yeah. It's just waste. There's so much waste in all of her poems, you know. Uh, and then that way, it reminds me of this other poet, Kim Hae-soon, who's also yes. kind of, there's also so much waste in her poems as well. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the thing is with, I mean, when we're talking about capital, it's really just sort of our libidinal ties to the form of the commodity, mm-hmm. right? That our bodies are somehow bound yeah. to perform kind of our institutional ties or the systems that sort of perpetuate or conduct our lives into livable outcomes that do not really, in fact, serve life, are not, in fact, livable, right? Yeah. And I think that her poems really, really speak to the sort of unlivable conditions. 
Well, I was, I was actually just posed a question on Twitter uh, <laughs> to bring up social media, but I was curious. I was like thinking about, uh, there was this question I asked where I asked, what, can you name me examples of poets and prose writers who make the subject of capitalism viscerally felt? Mm. And I think with like, Maybe it was some, I'm not saying all, but, you know, some American writers, when they decide, they're like, okay, I am writing, I am going to write about where it's really directly a subject matter about capitalism. For some reason, it tends towards the abstract. And please disagree with me and argue with me if if I'm wrong here. But like, I, I guess, you know, I was thinking that because I also read a fabulous essay by Anne Boyer in the latest issue of the Yale Review. It's so good. And I wish I had it with me. I just forgot the title. I'm terrible with titles. Um, where she talks about, and she's an example of a poet who is able to make the subject of capitalism viscerally mm-hmm. felt. Mm-hmm. But there's a quote in that essay where she says, capitalism is growth against life. And I just think that also embodies Che Sung Ja's poetry, mm-hmm. where it's like she really sort of writes, it's like growth against life. You know, it's like a cancer, right? And there's so much of that in Che Sung Ja's poetry, mm-hmm. where it's like she, you re, uh, viscerally feel what it's like to live. It's not even neoliberal. It's like a neo, neo-feudal society where there is absolutely no free will, which is what capitalism sort of promises, right? But there, and in fact, it's the opposite. The, the individual is absolutely like locked in place and there is no sense of movement. It's absolute stagnation, you know, and a stagnation that grows until it subsumes mm-hmm. you and then you die. You know, so I, I know that sounds really bleak, but, you know, there's but then then she goes on to her later poems or actually she kind of in a way, you know, if we return to kind of the 30 year old and the 40 year old and how she's always kind of tracking her life. It's like she stops doing that towards the later end where she's writing so obsessively, you know, in the earlier poem, she's writing so obsessively about loneliness and being stranded, being abandoned. And then, like, towards the end, she kind of lets go of that. And uh-huh. she becomes much more meta, kind of metaphysical or just... Her poems get more abstract, too, where she kind of writes more about these meditations on time, you know? Yeah, I love that. And, and she's mm-hmm. asking questions in the poems. The poems mm-hmm. sometimes begin with questions mm-hmm. that she's posing for herself and for the act of writing itself. And I do think that time is such an interesting question in the whole sort of uh, in in the spectrum of capital, right? I mean, because time is the thing that gets sort of like dissolved. The specificity of each moment disappears, Mm -hmm. especially now. I mean, in our vast emptiness Mm -hmm. where time just stretches on and there's no sort of moment no method for signification, especially, you know, at the end of your book where you're asking the question of like, well, what do we do? And like, how do we live when when you're saying you're writing in a time when history is being devoured, right, by what I, I think the mm. digital archives mm-hmm. or something like this, you say. And and I think that that's too when when that when you don't have memory yeah. yourself, right, when that sort of is like downloaded or elsewhere, how do you mark kind of the movement of your life. I mean, it seems so impossible. And (laughs) yeah, I mean, it's like the digital, what the digital age has done is collapse time and space. Yeah. And I've really realized this and I've been thinking about 
I never really think about time as a subject matter or time like before previously, but I think time is all on our mind since the pandemic, right? Because it's like every day feels like a Tuesday mm-hmm. as opposed to the De La Soul song, every day feels like a Saturday or something. I'm totally butchering the, yeah. the, the lyric, <laughs> but <laughs> it's not Saturday. It's more like Tuesday or maybe Monday, you know, but it, it there's a kind of sameness and monotony and it's like, what I realized, and someone else was saying this, how we are able to make memory is through the changes of space. You know, that is how that is how we're able to kind of demarcate time, and we're not we're not mm. changing spaces, so that each each different space makes a moment in time, and there are no moments in time anymore. Everything is just kind of this stream, right? The stream of mm-hmm. content that we are sort of absorbing and. It's really depressing. And I think this is like what Anne Boyer and Richie uh, Sengja talks about with capitalism is how much it's like, it's like a vampire. And I don't know why we're talking about capitalism, <laughs> but how it just kind of eats up. It's like, it's it went from, it's just like, it's using how it's gone to using your memory, your selfhood everything about you as profit, as product, as product to be sold and where shareholders become, where shareholders make a profit of, off of that. And I always knew that, but it just mm-hmm. seems so, it's never felt more alienating than right now during the pandemic, you know. But I, I'm also saying that as like a writer and professor who am able to work from home. I'm not, you know, of course, I'm not an an essential worker would mm-hmm. obviously have very different perspective on how time is cataloged during this age of the pandemic, Absolutely. during the pandemic. But, yeah. yeah. I mean, capital is like the dead end, even in conversation, you know. I mean, I know, I know, like, I know. We can move on. We can move on. <laughs> but it's, but it, but it is, I mean, it's all encompassing in such a completely sort of mindless way. I think it's sort of, yeah. Mm-hmm. But to go back to her poems, maybe we could read one more about time that's later on. Okay. Which one? Maybe I could read A Cloudy... A Cloudy Day. A Cloudy Day. Yeah. My time, when, which couldn't be converted to salary or capital, went off somewhere, and somebody shakes the me who isn't me. I am not me, but somebody shakes me. I sway calmly, asking, who am I? Does the full moon give birth to the crescent moon or the crescent moon to the full moon? To wax and wane is different from waning while waxing. Does the full moon give birth to the crescent moon or the crescent moon to the full moon? On a day as cloudy as rainwater, leaking from the ceiling, the invisible crescent moon may give birth to an invisible full moon again. This one is incredibly hopeful. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I mean, there is the circularity of time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that that question or that refrain is anticipated by I sway calmly asking... Who am I? Right, the moment of living and asking. 
I am not me, but somebody shakes me. Yeah, but it's so different from there's an earlier poem in which she's talking about like a business person who's being mm-hmm. moved by chairs and tables and all this. And yeah. this one, right? It, it's an again where where there's a kind of twinning, but this one feels tender. You know, her later poems, there's, I think in the voice, you hear more of this state of calm, acceptance, maybe tranquility, um, and acceptance of who she is. And, you know, when she starts with my time, which couldn't be converted to salary or capital, like it's like, I think a lot of poets may feel this way, you know, where, especially in Korea, where an individual is so identified by their role as in the family or their role in um, in their job or their occupation. She is someone who has been completely marginalized. You know, she her time couldn't be converted to salary or capital. She is without occupation. Well, she's a poet. A poet's time usually can't be converted to capital, much to a lot of the frustration of many, many poets. But anyway, she's saying to not be converted to capital means that she is without identity. I am not me. But then somebody, she's jolted. There's someone who kind of connects with her. And there's this kind of almost numbness. I sway calmly asking, who am I? So it's like she's, I mean, throughout the book, she's like, she's not, you know, she's always either because she's not a mother or a wife, or because she doesn't have a salary job. There is this constant question of who am I? I am nothing. I am nobody. There's also a bit of the Dickinson, I guess, in her poetry, Uh you know, and then... And uh, Ceylon translated Dickinson. Yeah, I know. I know. You could do definitely teach a class from like Dickinson, Ceylon, Chesunja, you know? Um, Absolutely. But it's also like, there's also, yeah, the subject of time. It's like, it's not, I mean, the moon is obviously, you know, you think of the f- feminine cycle of the moon, but it's also, she's saying she follows a time that's not linear, right? Um, wane from, she's to wax and wane is different from wa- waning while waxing, you mm-hmm. know? And she's like, it's not this sort of cycle of time that we're used to, but it's it's happening sort of s- simultaneously. And I think that's so beautiful. The invisible crescent moon may give birth to an invisible full moon again. Really, yeah, I agree. It's very, very hopeful. But the invisible part. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Like it's almost like it can happen, but it's a secret. Mm -hmm. It's the strange open secret of the possibility of life, you know? And it's also, or it could be on a day, it's like, in the afternoon, it's during the daytime when you don't see the moon, when it's mm. oh, free from ex- witness, that's when the moon can give birth and become whole again, but still be invisible away from the eyes of people who are looking from below. I don't, I don't know. There's so many ways to read that. And it is, it is a very tender and beautiful poem too, I think. Well, the sea is in her poems a lot. Yeah. Um, in it, water, like different iterations of water mm-hmm. from like, you know, the rainwater that we just saw or like piss stains or, you know. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, before we before we stop talking, before we end, maybe we could hear Dog Autumn because I want to I really want to talk about the phone bells oh. and the sort of the presence or specter of the phone throughout the poems. Dog autumn attacks syphilis autumn. 
and death visits one of twilight's paralyzed legs. Everything dries out and all roads boundaries blur. The old singer's voice droops on the recording. Hi, Jugsun. No, this isn't Jugsun. Jugsun? In midair, the telephone line loses the receiver and once departed lovers never return, not even in a dream. In a guest room inside the tavern of time, where the stagnant wastewater of memory stinks like horse piss, I ask in a voice awakened from disheveled death, how far have I gone, how far yet to go before the river becomes the sea? Let's talk about this, the old singer's voice drooping on the recording that transitions into, hi, Junso. No, I mean the, the telephone line. Mm-hmm. Is this the only place where there is a voice coming in like this? Because I feel like there are other times when she's describing the phone. The lonely women is one where the phone keeps ringing and, or the phone never rings. Right. Or may or suddenly, may suddenly ring. ring. I mean, I think yeah. that. I think the may suddenly ring is the most terrifying yeah. one, right? You work up to like really the fact that it could is so scary, right? There's it's it's funny because I don't know if you receive phone calls anymore, but don't you remember when you did receive phone calls where there was no text? There's this sort of the suddenness of something bursting into your life. I thought that was the most terrifying thing ever. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> You know, and so the phone, I thought, as this sort of strange kind of analog, this technology, Mm -hmm. now we perceive it as this sort of analog technology, not used for ringing, like phones are not used for ringing anymore. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, it feels even more untimely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's the only form of communication. And well, now when the phone rings, I'm like, at least my iPhone rings, I think, about spam. And right. I don't answer the phone. And that's, uh, so it's not that kind of existential sort of terror of the phone ringing all at once. But I guess when she was writing it, it was how it was really the only form of communication besides letter writing. And here it's throughout her poems, all of her poems, there's always this kind of either the, the phone line remaining dead, the silence of the phone, or there's this kind of miscommunication of people mm-hmm. not connecting, not being able to like talk to one another, not having the correspondence. Like this is, you know, hi, Jokson. No, this <laughs> isn't Jokson. Jokson. Yeah. You know, it's it's like kind of a comic interruption that happens in Dog Autumn. But the voice right at the end, I ask, in a voice awakened from disheveled death, the, there is an interlocutor there. Mm-hmm. And there is a sort of sort of a time outside of time, mm-hmm. right? I mean, she, she's in a guest room inside the tavern of time where the stagnant wastewater of memory stinks like horse piss. Mm-hmm. I mean, where is this place and this place of being, I guess? And then there's this, this voice that, in a voice awakened, and that I ask in a voice awakened is also like the voice is already disembodied, you know, the fact mm-hmm. that you can perceive your own voice as as being awakened or awoken. And I love the image of disheveled death. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Disheveled death, which was also a trick kind of translation is mm-hmm. when Wang Chung was describing the Korean word, it's like, 
She's saying it's like, you know, the hair, your hair is all messed up when you wake up, you know? Mm -hmm. I'm like, well, I guess disheveled is the closest translation for it, you know? And I mean, it's like her poems in general are very declarative and direct. And, you know, when you first read it, they seem very uh, simply direct, but there's so much complexity and depth to her poetry that, you know, I, I really feel humbled by it, mm-hmm. um, translating her poetry. And I have to say, translating is not my favorite activity. So It's so hard, right? I mean, it's really, really hard. It's so <laughs> hard. And in, in a lot of ways, it's, for me at least, it's not like being, right? It's just because, yeah, it's a conversation, but it's like, It's always respecting what the writer is doing. And it's really hard. It's just, yeah, it's just a tightrope, especially since I don't have this like kind of easy facility with Korean. So, and it was quite a journey for me to uh, translate Che Sung Ja as well. Yeah. Uh But it's, I mean, it is another form of consciousness that you have to then put into language. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have to sort of travel across to it. You know, you have to meet it on its terms that are not necessarily yours, but then Mm -hmm. you have to sort of give language to that, which I think... It's so important. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's so important. And really, thank you so much because, I mean, without your translation with Wang Chang Kim, I mean, we wouldn't have this. Yeah. No, I... Translating is always a hum... It's so humbling. And so, in a way, I think it's very different from being a writer because it's very egoless too. I mean, do you feel that way? I don't know. Mm. I just think that you have to kind of suspend the ego as a translator for me. Well, I don't least. think you have time to really mm-hmm. observe your ego because it's just you're completely thrown into this other voice and you really have to find, yeah, I find it to be quite difficult. Yeah. Thank you so much for this conversation. Well, thank you so much, Kathy, for inviting me to talk with you about Che Sung Gya, because it's one thing to read and another thing to sort of have the the incredible gift to talk about and think about the work, you know, and with the translator. Thank you, Lynn. Um, I consider you, I mean, like, I consider you a friend and also a poet who I respect so much. And you're also a poet who has had so much experience translating. And I'm really grateful that you agreed to talk to me about Che Sung Ja. How far have I gone? How far yet to go before the river becomes the sea? A big thanks to Kathy Park Hong and Lin Xu. Kathy Park Hong's recent book of creative nonfiction is Minor Feelings. Her poetry collections include Engine Empire and Dance Dance Revolution. She co-translated with Wong Chung Kim, Phone Bells Keep Ringing for Me by Che Soon Ja, out from Action Books in 2020. You can read two poems from the book in the January 2021 issue of the magazine, in print and online. Lin Xu was born in Shanghai. She's the author of Debts and Lessons and the chapbook June. She has also performed cross-disciplinary works at the Guggenheim Museum and Sector 2337, among other places. Xu is an editor at Canarium Books. The Poetry Magazine podcast is produced by Rachel James. The music in this episode came from Alabaster de Plume, Reservoir, John McCowan, Rob Masaryk, 
and Irreversible Entanglements. All these songs were released by the Chicago-born record label International Anthem. We'd love to know what you think of the new season. You can get in touch with us a number of ways. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, which is great because it helps others find the show. You can also email us at podcast at poetryfoundation.org. If you're not yet a subscriber to the magazine, for a limited time, we're offering podcast listeners a special rate of $20. That's $20 for a full year of the freshest voices in contemporary poetry, featured in 11 book-length issues, as well as free digital access on our mobile app. Visit poetrymagazine.org slash podcast offer to subscribe. That's poetrymagazine.org slash podcast offer. Okay, that's it. Until next time, be well, stay safe, and thanks for listening.